Hello sword people, welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher and writer. Join me for interviews with historical fencing instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training and bring the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. I'm here today with Neil Stevenson, the author, futurist, tech geek and swordsman whose works include Cryptonomicon, Seven Eves, The Diamond Age, Snow Crash, Fall or Dodge in Hell, and whose latest book, Termination Shock, goes into depth and detail about Sikh martial arts, among other things. His main claim to fame, though, is that he wrote the preface to my own sword fighting for writers, game designers and martial artists. <laughs> so without further ado, Neil, welcome to the show. It's good to be here, Guy. Uh, it's nice to see you again. It's, it's been a little while um, since that brief hour on your balcony in Seattle while you were suffering from COVID. You, yeah, you thanks, for, thanks for taking a chance. I, uh, and then you, you proceeded to get COVID the next week, oh, right? But, yeah, but a week later, it definitely wasn't you. And we were like uh, five meters apart outside with the wind blowing in the best direction. So, you know, I, I'm pretty sure it wasn't you. Um, it is a feature now of, you know, of um, human social interaction that probably hasn't been the case for hundreds of years that when you're talking to someone, you're very conscious of what direction the wind is blowing. Yeah, it's it's very weird. Um, I am I've only recently started becoming conscious of wind direction through learning to fly planes, where it's super important. Uh, yeah, it um, is. <laughs> but but yeah, it's it's a very strange thing. Like you're in somebody's garden, someone might have COVID. You want to stay upwind of them. So let's hope you had a shower today because they'll definitely be smelling you, but not the other way around. So whereabouts in the world are you? Seattle. Okay, overlooking the beautiful waters and nice. Scenery. I live in a, a neighborhood of Seattle that uh, that faces toward the lake, uh, so that's pretty non-specific because the lake is twenty-five miles long. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're, we're not trying to dox you. Don't worry. Yeah, <laughs> <It's> like, the, <laughs> um, uh, so, and there's houses on both sides of it, all the way around. So, um, but um, it's a city of of hills, of glacial ridges that run north south. Um, and uh, so um, most places have got a view of something. I happen to have a view of some, some lake water. Yes, and it's very pretty. So um, General Seattle, that is sufficiently precise. I have actually once, we were talking before about um, guests getting the chance to edit stuff. A couple of times people have been a bit too specific about where they lived and they've asked me to cut it out. So, yeah. <laughs> yes, you're right to be cagey because you don't want a bunch of nutters showing up at your door unless they happen to be sword nutters, in which case it's probably all right. It has been known to happen. <laughs> so how did you get into the whole sword thing? I uh, was always interested in it from a young age. I took um, fencing lessons in college um, from, um, I'm going to forget his name, Ed, uh, a, a man who I later found out was a very significant fencing instructor. Um, he passed away a few years ago and um, enjoyed that um, and particularly enjoyed the teacher, but it wasn't quite what I had in mind when I thought of sword fighting. Um, it was foil. Uh, it took a bit of saber. That was a little closer yeah. um, to what I had in mind. And then uh, a few years later, I did some kendo uh, here in Seattle. Um, that was closer yet um, to my concept of, of sword fighting, um, but still uh, it's a very... Um, kind of stylized, protocol-bound yeah. uh, style. 
So um, years passed, and I, uh, I, I found myself playing with, with foam swords with my, my son, uh, who uh, enjoyed bashing me about the knees. Uh, and I began playing with, with trying to build foam sword replicas that, um, that would stand up to serious abuse and that were of realistic weight. I th- it was about then that I um, began working on the Baroque Cycle books, and yeah. there's some sword fighting action in there. I should probably jump ahead here and say that the, uh, if I could go back and rewrite those books, um, first thing I would do is probably make some changes to the description of the sword fighting because I think it's all wrong. But um, okay. uh, at least I was trying to make a, a legit effort at um, at learning something about historical styles. And the, the first one that I was interested in was was rapier and dagger. Um, so because that's an, an important um, style used by some of the characters in the, the first those books. So uh, I found a video that um, was really more geared toward um, theatrical sword fighting, but it was something, mm-hmm. and um, started trying to play around with that um, with some friends of mine here in Seattle. So this would have been probably around 2000, 2001, and we would meet in shitty old warehouses uh, in Seattle's industrial port districts and and try to learn something about this. So that was the very beginning of it. Uh, and um, I can I can carry on from there if you if you would like, but I'm going to give you a chance to, <laughs> to jump. In. Yeah, it's, it's curious that you were, you were doing this stuff so early because like the 90s was really the very beginning of it for most people. We can trace some people were doing some things before that, but it didn't really start to spread until like the mid nineties. Yeah, when so, was the when was the Edinburgh Don Duelist scene happening? Um, that began. I mean, strictly the, the the seed for that was when Paul McDonald and I fought at three o'clock in the morning under Salisbury Crags in it must have been November nineteen ninety two. Okay, and so, then we so were quite a bit earlier. Yeah, yeah. So then we were bish bash washing each other and basically trying to make sport fencing more realistic mm-hmm. or trying to do more realistic fencing than sport fencing because I'd actually met him at a sport fencing event and we were like both similarly dissatisfied with the artificialities of it yeah and then we got some friends to sort of join in and it was formally inaugurated as a club in June 1994 and then it sort of it developed and grew from there it's still actually running today so I'm quite pleased about that um, so yeah, yeah. So yeah, that was my sense is that um, that the nineties was when anything at all began to, to happen. And so is is, is this why um, hero protagonist incidentally the best name for the main character in a novel ever? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Thank <sake>. you. <laughs> um, is that why he's basically doing kendo all the time? Because that's what you've done up to that point. Yeah. So that book was written in the circa nineteen eighty nine nineteen ninety. And um, the um, and so that's ten years before the, the what I just described. Um, so I that, at that point I had done um, some kendo um, here in Seattle. That that would have been about 1986, 87. Mm-hmm. So a few years earlier. Um, so that was the closest thing I had to some specific knowledge of uh, 
of that style of, of well, not, I shouldn't call it a style, of Japanese sword fighting. Um, of course, today, um, I, I know a bit more because of um, having had contact with um, Ellis Amdur here in Seattle. and Yeah, he, other, he knows a little bit about Japanese A little, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm told he may have... He may have dabbled in it. <laughs> uh, yeah, in, in case the listeners haven't heard of Ellis Under, he has been training at the very highest levels in Japanese martial arts for about 50 years and is ungodly good with weapons. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and, and, um, and, you know, so we could now spend the, the rest of the podcast on this topic, but just say that um, uh, I got a chance to watch Ellis teach at, um, uh, at uh, VIS, uh, Vancouver International Swordplay Symposium, a couple of years ago. And we drove up from Seattle together and we drove back down. And he spent a day or so uh, covering kind of a small aspect of, um, I believe it was Iraqi Ryu, mm -hmm. which has to do with a particular scenario where one person has a dagger and the other doesn't. Um, and... Um, uh, so pretty narrow, specific set of moves that you can do in that situation. So I asked him on the way back, so of, of that martial art, how much did we see today? Was it 1%, you know, 5%, 10%, 50%? And it was a pretty small number. Um, and then I asked him how many Japanese martial arts there were of equivalent scope. And he's, he, he said there were a lot of them. So... <laughs> <laughs> you know, so um, um, so it's a big area. And if you watch these people do these styles, they're strikingly different from one another. So Iraqi Ryu is lots of screaming, lots of extremely aggressive, you know, hard hitting. Um, you're just trying to batter the other person down. And, and then there's other styles that have an entirely different look and, and flow to them. Um, so... Okay, so you have access to these martial arts because I'm sure Ellis would show you some stuff if you asked him. Um, so, but I happen to know you are drawn more to George Silver and his paradoxes of defense. Why? Um, well, it's a. Uh, you said it was okay to ramble, so this may yeah, please. This may take a few minutes, but well, going back to early aughts when we were practicing in warehouses with foam. Um, I put a lot of effort into trying to make better foam simulators, uh, made some headway. Um, but it was probably around 05, 06 that we um, finally connected with Angus Trim and Tinker Pierce, two sword makers of note in the Seattle area, and kind of became aware that you could get steel simulators that were that were good, um, you know, that were of historical weight and balance uh, and that could stand up to, to some abuse. Um, and um, uh, so the, um, it, 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 and it was also around then a little bit later that I went, first went to uh, WMAW, the Western Martial Arts Workshop uh, in Wisconsin that's run by the Chicago Swordplay Guild and got exposed to, um, to the larger uh, Western martial arts community for the first time. Yeah, I mean, that's where we first met. Right. Um, I think it was 2007. Yeah, I believe that's right. right. I believe that's right. And and the first year I showed up, at least half the people 
were using wooden or even plastic wasters. Uh, a lot of aluminium at that point as well, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And then um, within a year or two, that was all gone and everyone had steel. Hallelujah. So, yeah. So, um, so it was around then kind of the two things that we realized were that we should be using steel because we could, because it's better. And, and that the longsword in particular was um, becoming the dominant form or the, the dominant weapon, let's say. And um, so at that point, we, um, we changed the name of the group to Lonin um, because um, uh, the, the other groups we were in contact with, your school in Finland, the Chicago Swordplay Guild, Sean Hayes' school, uh, Academy Duello, etc., all had people who were, each of those had someone who was clearly the leader Mm-hmm. Uh, of that school, uh, the um, kind of the master, as it were. Um, a, a lot of the the lineages were all broken, so we yeah. can argue about about the use of that term. Yeah, no, but, but you're right. I mean, you know, I have a lot in common with with these. Well, my school has a lot in common with these schools, and one thing that, that they all have in common is yes, there's usually a founder who is still there teaching. Although my school in Helsinki has been doing just fine without me for the last six years. Well. <laughs> no comment. Um, <laughs> oh, it, it, it was it was always designed to be that way because if it can't survive the, the right, loss of the founder, what's the point? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. for sure. So in our case, we did not have such a person. We didn't want to pretend that we did. Um, and so it was going to be a masterless school. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, that made us think of Ronin, the masterless samurai. So we just mm-hmm. mushed that together with longsword. And came up with the word Lonin. And um, we even made a little glyph that's, it's a, we mashed, mushed together a Norse rune and a Japanese character um, to, to express that idea. Um, and so um, initially it was entirely longsword. Um, we kind of started with German using Christian's books um, and uh, Christian Tobler's books mm-hmm. and, and kind of moved on, started doing Fiore as well when, when good translations of Fiore became available. And that continues to this day. But um, another thread that got started was Bartitsu, um, based on Tony Wolf's scholarship in that area. Right. So we, uh, we got his books <clears throat> and we, we created a separate track um, within Lonin that was focusing on Bartitsu. Right. And that um, kind of has slowly morphed over time. So, you know, the, the sort of classical elements of Bartitsu would be Jujitsu, um, which um, Barton Wright sort of brought over from Japan, um, combined with Vinyi uh, Kane fighting. Um, and uh, a few other uh, pugilism, some defense other with a bicycle, defense with a bicycle, and uh, with a cane where you use the crook of the cane to hook the other guy's leg or neck. Uh, all all sorts of oddities, um, and you know the humor of it, the kind of Monty Python esque angle is is part of the the charm. Um, so we, we would work on all of those. Um, but the, the thing that's different between Seattle in say 2012, 2015 versus London at, 
you know, in the, the late Victorian era is that um, if you want to do jujitsu, it's everywhere. Sure. Both classic jujitsu and Brazilian jujitsu. Um, and there's lots of people around who are much, much better at that than, um, than any of us. <clears throat> and um, uh, whereas when, when Barton, you know, Barton Wright was the only game in town, he was, you know, he, he, he had brought jujitsu over as this incredibly esoteric, amazing, you know, new set of ideas. Um, so to the extent that uh, jujitsu is a large portion of Bartitsu, we, we kind of ended up asking ourselves, what's the point, point. Of, of us trying to teach this? Um, can, we even, can we even teach it in a responsible way? Um, well, know. I think as a historical curiosity, you can. Yeah. I mean, as a, as a, this will keep you safe on the mean streets of Seattle, definitely not. No. But as a, this is what they were doing in late 19th century London, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but if, no, if you're you, not interested right. in you, just... You can, you can treat it as a, a reenactment of a way of teaching jujitsu from 100 years ago. Right. Um, so, but yes, well, one questions the point. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so we ended up, our focus then, by default, moved towards the Lacan, the Cain stuff, and, and so on, which is, which is fine. Um, some savat, um, but uh, um, there's only so much you can do in those areas without um, without expert instruction. Um, and so, um, but we did begin to add more uh, more sword work. Um, because uh, Nathan Barnett was part of the group, and he's part of a kind of a, a, a small but important lineage of, of silver uh, scholars uh, that includes Stephen Hand, uh, Paul Wagner in Australia, and so in him we had someone who could who could really teach that that material, um, and it's arguably a deviation from from Bartitsu, which didn't emphasize sword work much. But Hutton, Alfred Hutton, was actually the sword instructor at Barton Wright's school. Yeah, although Alfred Hutton wasn't teaching anything related to silver. Well, but Hutton wrote a book in 1899 uh, about sword instruction, and it's got a, an appendix called Defense Against an Uncivilized Enemy. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, these are not terms we would use today, but um, essentially he's saying that in, uh, uh, I mean, it's phrased in a, a pretty dry kind of sarcastic style, but he's saying that, you know, if if you are a, 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 in the military in Afghanistan and uh, you, you find yourself engaged in sword combat with one of the locals, um, he's not going to politely salute uh, prior to the onset of hostilities. He's not going to confine his movements to a narrow strip back and forth. Um, he, he, so, made, he may do shocking things like allowing one foot to pass in front of the other. <gasps> huh. yeah. He may step sideways. Wow, that's a bit outlandish. Yeah, he, might, he might dodge out of the way. Um, so... Um, so we need to, uh, and the style of sword fighting that we're being taught with foil is um, is simply not not going to work against people like that. So how can we 
learn how to fight those guys and without being like them. Right. Basically. He, he doesn't, you know, he's, 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 he doesn't want to go and learn passion martial arts. Right. Right. Well, okay. it turns out, he says that, um, there was this guy 300 years ago who's as British as they come, who, uh, who knew all about this and he wrote it down in a book. Um, it was a guy named George Silver and someone had, someone had gotten, uh, one of Silver's manuscripts to Hutton and he had read it. And, um, so, um, um, so that was the, that was our excuse for teaching uh, okay. Silver in what okay. had started out as a Bartitsu because the sword instructor to the Bartitsu school can be demonstrated to have known about George Silver, and therefore, right. who knows what Silverian stuff he put in his classes. And yeah, it's it's a pretty um, slim yeah. argument. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, who knows an excuse? Really, I mean, Silver's fabulous. Yeah. So, um, so that was how we uh, and and there's um, there's a lot of other. Um, once you start getting into it, a lot of other background um, that um, that supports this. Um, just there, there, as I uh, as I see it, and uh, others may disagree. There's kind of a long running split between um, kind of more dueling focused sword play that's all about the thrust and lighter weapons. Um, and um, the kind of sword play that military, active military people felt was felt that they needed. Sure. Um, yeah. Um, one 18th century source, ah, I'm blanking on the name of it. I'll put it in the show notes. Described uh, small sword is the call of honor, but back sword is the call of duty. Yeah, which is exactly what Silver is saying. I mean, uh, yeah. Silver is very clear that um, he, he, he despises the rapier because in his mind it's it's a duelist's weapon and if you're engaging in duels in london you're probably fighting another englishman and um what's the point of that you know the 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 reason we carry swords around and get good at swords is so we can fight people who are not englishmen like the french yeah um (laughs) you know or as he puts it uh in the service of the prince you know that's yeah exactly you know, so that's his phrase for essentially military combat, and so he's he's articulating uh, a, a, a difference that many other people before and and after him had had been aware of, uh, which is that um, if you're in a uh, melee situation, multiple opponents, or you know, defense against uncivilized enemies, whatever you want to call it, you you may need a different skill set. Then you might, you would need to engage in a formal one-on-one duel, you know, where uh, certain rules are are being enforced. Right. Okay. And and you have a preference then for more military-style combat over the duel. Is that fair? Um, I, I do. Yeah. I don't deprecate okay. the other. No, no, no. Sure, sure. We yeah. all have our preferences. Yeah. Um, so my you know, the thing that always was interesting to me and the, the, the reason I kept searching, you know, mm-hmm. um, until I found Hema was, um, you know, okay, what's real sword fighting like? Right. That's and, the question we all have to answer. And everyone has a different answer. 
Right. Because it, is, it means something slightly different to everyone. I mean, for some people, if the blades aren't sharp, it's not real sword fighting. And for others, if it's not a tournament, it's not real sword fighting and so on and so on. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so that is, uh, is, you know, the, the, the lineage that is clearly defined by silver and carried through to uh, McBain and, and many others is... is so, do you see a, an actual lineage connection between McBain and... So oh, no, I don't I, mean... I don't I mean I'm, I'm probably using the wrong word, but, but that kind of general thread of... Uh, the attitude. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, McBain's only training came from a sort of French small sword and military training. That, those are the two kind of that, that he talks about in his book because I, I I edited yeah. it recently with the intention oh. of making another audio book out of it. Oh, okay, um, so I did I did an audio book for Silver. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't depend on pictures. So I thought yeah. this is a brilliant candidate for an audio book. Um, um, and I was going to do the same with McBain, and I ended up doing all the editing, and then just deciding I didn't have the I don't know the energy to. Yeah raise the money to pay the narrator. Cause I, I was, I was planning on getting somebody quite well known for the narration. Mm-hmm. So I thought it'd be kind of cool to get someone like you know, yeah. Yeah. James Cosmo, for example, for the narration. And so I was talking to various agents and whatever. And I thought, Oh God, I'm going to have this to raise. It's a lot of work. Yeah. yeah. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of money. And then when you've got the files, you're about halfway there to actually producing the finished work. And it's like, yeah. <laughs> I love McBain. I love him dearly. Yeah. Um, and in fact, in fact, I am quite happy to take credit for introducing McBain to the modern historical martial arts scene because it was me that found him and got oh. him copied and distributed in the reenactment scene in Scotland in the mid 90s. For those right. who don't know, he's a sort of gangster pimp. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to put it. Um, sort of mercenary, well, not a mercenary exactly, but. Um, oh, he, he fought as a kind of mercenary ish ways in. in, in uh, but he was also a gladiator, a prize fighter. Back when later, prize yeah, fights were yeah, yeah were fought with yeah. with with swords, which yeah. is all, it's the only way to do it. I mean, he, if yeah, boxing his, was done with swords. I'd be interested. And his book is full of great stuff. Like you know, um, you know, there are certain there are certain persons of low character who will have some dirt. They'll put dirt in their pocket. That's right. They'll reach in and throw it in your face to blind you. Um, you know. Whereas if, uh, you know, a, a, a decent person would pick the dirt up off the ground. <laughs> That's what I mean. And also, you know, make sure your opponent takes their hat off before you duel because they may have a gun concealed in it and shoot you with it, <laughs> which happened to him, according yeah, well, to him. Yeah, of course, his. you wouldn't. <laughs> right. When somebody, when somebody bothers to mention something like that in the book, it's, yeah. uh, it's, it's probably based on experience. Um, yeah. So he it, got... He got set on fire. He uh, got he, blown up by his own grenade. Yeah. Um, he fell down a well or was thrown down a well. It's an amazing story. Um, it, it, yeah. And um, now that we're chatting about it, I am maybe perhaps thinking about getting the energy together to actually raise the money to get it recorded. Because yeah, it's a perfect audio. But imagine, imagine in a Highland Scots accent. Yeah. That, that narration. Telling just, those, yeah. And, oh, and he, he, he basically, his, his, his livelihood during his military career is derived from being a pimp. Um, right. So he's yeah, riding a string of prostitutes the whole time with his wife. <laughs> his, yeah. his wife One keeps, of several wives. 
Yeah. His wife keeps no. showing up to, to drag him out of a well or, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah. Or, 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 or take him to a bunch of monks to get him healed after he's been blown up. Yeah. yeah. Um, brilliant. Okay. So, ah, yes. We're so, anyway, just to, to kind of wrap up yeah, where please. we started, the, 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 um, the Bartitsu part of the group, which was called Bwahahaha, the Barton Wright Alfred Hutton Association for Historically Accurate Hoplology and Antagonistics. I missed out, and I have it in my notes, and I missed out one of the last HA. <laughs> Historical yeah. Antagonistics, brilliant. Yeah, yeah, so that kind of morphed over time just because at, at the end of the day, what everyone really wanted to do was sword fighting. And so the other stuff, the, the jujitsu, we, we do still, still do some stick, but a lot of that just kind of fell by the wayside. We, so uh, it ended up essentially being a, a, a backsword group. We mm-hmm. made our own equipment. We, um, we also got heavily into Indian club swinging as a, as a workout. Uh, okay, I should I should perhaps mention to the listeners who haven't had the pleasure of being in your house. Um, when he says Indian clubs, the ones I saw last time I was there are the size of tree trunks. I mean, they are literally a foot across in girth. They are insane. So we we definitely need to talk about Indian clubs and the Victorian calisthenics. So happy to, yeah, yeah. And and I guess I just also to close another loop, the mm-hmm. the other. Like truly remarkable thing that emerged from all this is that uh, Tim Ruzicki, another Don Duelist, um, that's right, yeah, part- participant of old. Uh, yeah, he came over to Scotland to train with us for about a year. Um, must have been about ninety eight, something like that. Lovely bloke. So Tim, Tim is Tim shows up on uh, one night a week, typically to to teach pugilism or whatever he feels like teaching, mm. um, and. Um, and I, I think it's an underappreciated fact of, of, of the group because, you know, he runs Combat Con or co-runs Combat Con. He's right. a- and I've had the um, dubious pleasure of walking my face into Tim's extended left arm. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, he's quite good at the whole punching people in the head thing. He is. He is. Yeah. Yeah. My uh, uh, my similar story was um, attempting to punch him and instead running my unprotected fist into his elbow. Ouch. Yeah. Um, Not good. But um, uh, so that's kind of where, what, what that group evolved into uh, over time. Okay. But you have a sort of a subgroup that does the Indian clubs. Is that, is that part of the or is it? Yeah. Yeah. It used to be that we would, um, we used to open each practice with swinging clubs. And then uh, Andrew Somlio, a member of Lonin, who's a physician and who spends a, a lot of his considerable brain power thinking about training and mm-hmm. the physiology of exercise, um, found some research to the effect that you should do the heavy strength training at the end, not at the beginning. Yeah. Um, so we, we moved that part of it to the end of the, um, of, of each practice and then, um, of, then COVID happened. And, um, in March of, uh, 2020, we, we sent a message out to, um, to everyone in, in the group saying, we're going to suspend practices for two or three weeks until this blows over. <laughs> right. Yeah. Two, three weeks should do it. Yeah. 
and um, month tops. And then we, uh, but we started doing Zoom calls, and you can't do. Uh, it's hard to do sword fighting over Zoom, but yeah, it's, but it's easy to do the the Indian club swinging and other kind of one you know body weight Cast exercises. Nice, yeah, and that became kind of a lifeline for us for the sure. next two years, uh, and we still um, as things changed over time we we still have three zoom sessions per week that are exclusively devoted just to indian clubs and body weight exercises excellent so what does your indian club and body weight exercise training actually look like well <clears throat> there's we kind of arbitrarily divide it into four weight classes um mm-hmm. the there's there's a very light like one or two pound style that was popular. Um, it was an Olympic sport uh, in the early 20th century, and it's very twirly and complicated and sort of artistic. So it's like rhythmic gymnastics kind mm. of thing. We only know about it because one of the original members of the the juggling group, the Flying Karamazov brothers, w- is an expert in this, and uh, his dad was a gymnastics teacher at UCLA, and so he learned all of this stuff when he was a kid and. So he taught us some of those moves, but um, we don't we don't do it much. Um, mm-hmm. We have one member, Matthew Peterson, who's very proficient at it, but it's not a part of our regular routine. And then there's what we call medium clubs, which are two to three pounds, um, which you can move with the small muscles of the, the wrist. Uh, you can move these things around, big range of motion, um, not a lot of uh, of um, heavy exercise i would say but but again good for for range of motion and some conditioning um then we go to what we call heavy clubs which depending on who you are can go anywhere from five to twenty pounds most of us are in the 10 to 15 pound range um Mm -hmm. and those are big movements uh where you're recruiting um all of the major muscle groups in your body basically to move these things around. So you're doing some squats that recruit your lower back and your, your quads and so on. Um, and um, uh, um, there's simpler movements that um, rely to a large extent on balance and timing because these are heavy enough that if the if it goes off kilter, you, you can't, can't catch it. You can't use main strength to you, you can't just use your wrist to to, to get yeah yeah you've got to let gravity have its way <clears throat> um, and and so that's pretty heavy exertion and then finally there's gada which is um, uh, a weight on the end of a stick that's about at least three feet long to three and a half feet and those can be anywhere from ten pounds on up. Um, I'm comfortable with the 25 pounder. Some people go much higher, but there again, you're you're recruiting all of the muscles in your body to move this thing around. And, uh, you're relying on um, on timing and being able to um, kind of uh, use your core. It's a cliche, but you, you've got to activate your core um, to to make this work. So we have a routine uh, that. Um, that we've all kind of got memorized um, that we uh, that we go through and uh, we we use a timer so each set of exercises runs for a, a specific amount of time and the whole the whole routine goes for um, 20 30 minutes okay so it's the same thing every time yeah well 
we have a different one that we do on Sundays that is more, um, it's more, it's, uh, there's a uh, particular kind of um, squat uh, called a, a bitok or a baytok squat. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a body weight exercise. Uh, there's the uh, the Indian style push ups where you're kind of swooping down and yeah. So um, and some some other some other stuff. All right. So this basically just keeps you fit. Is it, is it what they were doing in any, anything connected to Bartitsu, or is, is this just separate? Um, I'm sure they did Indian club swinging. Um, it was popular in the late 19th century in Britain. Yeah. There was a, there was a craze for it, as I recall. Right. So, um, I, I mean, Tony Wolf could, could well, ask had- definitively, <laughs> but they, they must have, you, they must have done yeah. Indian clubs because that was just how you worked out. Right then. And it's, it is very effective. I, I've done some sessions with you in Seattle and I have, I've actually developed my own clubs for kind of simulating sword motions with. In yeah. a confined space. It's, yeah, it's just a really nice way to get the shoulders moving and the rest of the body. Um, well, it teaches you some good habits that are, I think, good for shoulder health. So, sure. When, when you're um, sword fighting, you're almost always holding something out in front of you. And um, um, there's a natural tendency to want to get the weapon as close to the bad guy as possible while staying as far away from yeah. the bad guy as possible. So people tend to, to kind of do a reaching out um, that is not good for your shoulders. Sure. Uh, and you can't, so with, with Indian clubs, it teaches you, you can't do that. You've got to have your shoulders back and your chest out in a very Victorian manly kind <laughs> of uh, attitude. Yeah. Uh, and um, <clears throat> so I think that if you do it right, it can help you develop good, good habits. Yeah, good, good mechanical habits for swinging swords around for sure. Um, yeah. Now, you go into Sikh martial arts in quite a lot of detail in Termination Shock. Have you actually trained them or was that done from research? It was done from research largely just because of COVID. Okay. Again, um, you know, the um, this stuff is pretty well documented. Um, sure. And so I didn't – it is possible to do too much research. And um, – I, I was like, hang on. Okay, quite a few of the people who listen to this show are actually writers of fiction. Mm-hmm. So can we just highlight the fact that you just said it is possible to do too much research? Yeah. Because, hallelujah, that is so true. Yeah. Okay. Particularly with, with sword fighting. So when we did the, you know, years ago, 10 or more years ago, we did the Mongoliad um, series uh, of books. And um, um, I think more than one of us on that project saw it as obvious and natural that we would want to um, go really deep on the, uh, the, the research, the, the martial arts research. And um, yeah. we actually, um, we actually got Ellis to come in and, and sort of act out a particular fight scene between a samurai and a, a, a swordsman. Yeah. And you got me in too, to do some of the sword and stuff. And you, that's right. That's mm. right. Um, so that was a fun project. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, it turns out that um, that's all fine, but uh, actually trying to um, write prose describing a sword fight is difficult. It's it's very easy to produce a lot of carefully researched verbiage that, <laughs> um, yes. that simply doesn't do what you want it to do as a fiction writer. Um, sure. So, um, do you know anyone who does it well? 
Can you think of sword fights in fiction that you think are done well? Hmm. Hmm. Interesting question. Um, the um, you know, I think Joe Abercrombie um, mm-hmm. is uh, he's got the right idea, um, which is that it's chaotic and it's not. There's not a lot of fancy techniques. There's it's it's random things happening and um, and bloody and painful and uh, frequently over very rapidly. Um, so um, <clears throat> so I don't know if he does a lot of detailed research about these things, but I think he he takes a, he takes a good approach to it. Um, but um, yeah, it's a good it's a good like, question. Have you have you read the Flashman books by George McDonald Fraser? No. Okay, because I think I think that the violence in that is done extremely well. I mean, Flashman is the character is this bully and coward and ne'er do well philanderer who ends up by accident and luck, you know, with a Victoria Cross and the knighthood and the thanks of Parliament and all that sort of stuff. It, it all just comes out right in the end for him. But he ends up forced to fight in lots of situations, and the way the fights are described, yeah, Seems exhausting. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Painful. And all the fancy stuff goes out the window. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, part of one of the joys of, of that project was, was, uh, watching Joseph Brassy, um, sort of sink his, his teeth into it. And yeah, he really sort of blossomed as a writer in that situation. Yeah. So, um, and he's gone on to, um, great things. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, um, the uh, um, uh, so anyway, when I was working on the, um, the termination shot stuff, I kind of um, you know part of me was frustrated that COVID was going to make it difficult to, um, to to physically engage you know with with people who do this stuff for real, um, and part of me uh, knew that it was probably for the better um, uh, because it's. Uh, um, again, um, particularly in a, a book like that, which is, you know, trying to reach a fairly broad audience, um, mm-hmm. to go into a whole lot of detail about how these fights work would have been kind of beside the point. Yeah, it's it's not there's there's clearly a bunch of research like how they prepare the training hall before class by digging it up and turning it over, all that sort of detail. It's it's really nice for the martial arts geeks who are reading. Yeah, but I, I think there's probably not so much of it that slows things down too much. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but that's something where anyone who reads it, whether they care about martial arts or not, can get a picture of what's going on. And, sure. And it's, it's it relates to the development of the character. Whereas if you're writing a ten page long description of each attack and parry, yeah, counter attack, you know, shift of weight in a, a fight. Um, <laughs> That's the point when you're going to lose a lot of readers. Yeah, it would actually get really boring really quickly. And, yeah. and in fact, like my when people ask me about writing sword fights because they know I don't know much about writing fiction, but I know quite a lot about sword fights. My sort of number one top tip is don't use any jargon. Right? Don't yeah. call it a madrigal fandente or a, a Oberhau or whatever. Just sort of describe what's happening and why anyone should care. Yeah. Um, yeah. Rather, rather than actually. Don't, don't write it for the martial artists in the, in the audience. Write it for the people who understand, who can sort of get that sympathetic reaction to the violence that's happening. But then they're, they're not going to be judging it analytically because if they do, then it's that's not how you read fiction, right? 
Yeah, it's also not how you sword fight. Yeah, true. You Very know. good point. Now, on on the subject of research, um, I have to ask, who is Charles C. Mann, and why should we care? He's a good friend of mine. Charles Mann um, mm-hmm. is the author of um, uh, books called 1491 and 1493, which are two of the most amazing historical books I've read. Uh, mm-hmm. 1491 is about what the Americas looked like prior to the arrival of Europeans. 1493 is about the aftermath of the merging of the old and new worlds. Uh, and so, um, and he's written quite a few other books, the, the Wizard and the Prophet, which is about kind of two competing strains of environmentalism. Um, but for, for people who um, follow your podcast, um, 1491 and 14, particularly 1493 are going to be probably the, the good places to start. Um, and he, uh, uh, we ended up being among the, the co-authors of a graphic novel, uh, called Cimarronin, um, which, uh, was, was one of the spin outs of the whole Mongoliad project. And it started when he, uh, Cam, Cam, he goes by Cam. Uh, he called me because, uh, he had come across, um, some, information about um, the the silver trade. So there used to be a circular s- silver trade that China needed silver because it was their currency. Uh, they they weighed it out. They didn't go, they didn't mint coins. Um, so it all was by weight and um, silver tarnishes over time and it goes away. Um, and uh, so they had an insatiable demand for silver and um, Mexico or the Spain um, had huge silver mines in Mexico. Um, and so uh, the Spaniards would would refine silver in Mexico and take it in caravans down to Acapulco and load it on ships. And they would those would go to Manila, um, another Spanish base. And then in Manila, there was a connection to Chinese traders. So Chinese traders would come down from Shaman and sort of southeastern China with um, silks and porcelain and, you know, any other trade goods they could carry and trade them for silver in Manila. And then the Spaniards would load those on these huge ships, the biggest ships afloat called the Manila Galleons, and sail that those back to uh, Acapulco. And um, <clears throat> so, uh, and that trade went on for a long time. Uh, there's a great guy called Jamelli Carreri, who's a, he's another McBain. He's he's okay. right up there with McBain, who who sailed. He went around the world and uh, uh, and 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 crossed the Pacific on the Manila Galleon. Um, but um, um, the uh, the uh, the Spaniards ran into a problem, which was that um, up in the mountains of Mexico, there were these people called Maroons or Cimarronin or no, or C- C- Cimarrones, Cimarrones, um, who um, were uh, a, a mixture of indigenous people and uh, escaped African slaves. And so the slave trade, a lot of the uh, people who got sent over from Africa as slaves were prisoners of war. Um, who had been marched out from conflicts in the interior of, of Africa. And so um, a lot of these guys were 
were sort of badasses. And if they survived the process of, of you know, being sent across to, um, to, to the New World, um, they would end up on typically on sugar plantations. Um, and the first thing that would happen is that the overseer would hand them a machete. Okay. So you can kind of see the, yeah. the failure mode in this whole scheme. Um, and, and as you know, uh, Damon Stith in um, Austin, Texas, is, has been sure. studying the different styles of machete fighting that emerged in different in, uh, uh, yeah, we've had we've had him on the show and, and discussed about it. I'll put a link to that episode in the show notes. Great, great. So, um, so a lot of these guys ended up putting their machetes to non-agricultural <laughs> use and um, and running up into the mountains where they formed right. these communities with the indigenous people called Cimarrones. And so those people started attacking the silver caravans that uh, were going from the mines in the mountains down to Acapulco. And so they were beginning to choke off a really important economic resource for the Spanish. The Spanish are like, where are we going to find some fighters who are capable of taking on these dudes? Um, and um, fortunately, they had an answer, which was that hanging around Manila and other sort of port cities in, in Southeast Asia, there were a lot of ronin uh, who had been caught out. Okay, quick quick check. Is this fact from Charles Mann's research or is this fiction this is from, all, the, from the story? This is all totally factual. Totally factual, okay. Yeah, totally factual. And so they, and the, the way that worked, as is, is you probably know, if you know anything about Japanese history, was that the, the shogun just closed off Japan uh, on a certain day. And if you were a Japanese person outside of Japan... Uh, on that day, you could never come back. Right. Um, so these guys were stuck, and uh, and so they became mercenaries and and muscle, and so the Spaniards recruited them uh, and sent them to Mexico to fight these these maroons, these cimarrones, uh, and protect the silver shipments. And so Charles Cam had encountered all of this doing his research, and he had written a sentence in the book which was, thus did masterless samurai from Japan find themselves wielding their katanas in the mountains of the Sierra Madre, you know, to protect the Spanish silver supply. <laughs> right. And then because it's him, yeah. because it's him, because it's Cam, he, he said, oh, wait a second. What if they weren't katanas? I, I assume they're katanas and it sounds great, but I don't, I don't know that. So he called me up and he asked me, Neil... Were they would it, would they have used katanas or some some other thing? And I said, well, um, I don't know, but I know the guy who knows. And so we called Ellis and got his opinion on it. And then we all kind of had the same idea, which was we right, have the story. To, yeah, we have to to do a comic book. <laughs> and so we got together with Mark Teppo, who is one of the other sort of co-founders of the whole Mongoliad thing, and we. We made the Cimarron in comic book together. Ah, okay. And I mean, it's there are echoes of this in Cryptonomicon and the Baroque cycle. Like, I remember in Cryptonomicon, there's mentioning the cathedral in Manila has these stones in it that came over on the as ballast on these ships. Right. Yeah. They. Um, right. Uh, 
they would they would take the ballast stones out because these ships were all by the time they they'd finished the, their first crossing they were all ready to be scrapped um, yeah and so they would just pull the stones out and use them for building I'll send you a a picture I've got a we we choreographed a fight between uh, Kitazume the uh, the samurai in the story and um, someone else and I had to be the poor sap who was the the loser of that fight um, right and so i've got a picture of me up in the lone and loft lying sprawled out on my back and and ellis has an eight foot spear in my chest um <laughs> he's sort of he's sort of holding forth with his other hand he's like explaining what he just did to me uh to some amused onlookers um, yeah well, that's definitely one for the show though it's brilliant yeah um Okay, uh, we've mentioned the Baroque cycle a few times, um, and you famously wrote the whole thing out by hand. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you, you know I'm, I'm a bit of a, a fountain pen geek, so can I just ask for the benefit of the fountain pen geeks out there, what kind of pen do you favor for that sort of thing? Um, I'm just writing, putting this on my to-do list. I uh, wrote most of... Well, I use several pens, and so my I use I have a few relatively broad nib pens. Um, about four of them that I keep loaded with different colors of ink, um, and so I'll rotate through and use so I can tell when I go back and look at the manuscript. Okay, here's where I stopped one day and started the next day, um, and um, that also keeps the just keeps the pens from drying up if they get used sure. in in rotation um and um and then i'll go back over i have a couple of other pens with finer nibs that i use for editing and so um so that's kind of that process the the main <clears throat> i'll go grab it the kind of my favorite one <clears throat> is this which is a Jorg high sec sort of very modern arrow styled pen uh, with carbon fiber barrel and you unscrew and it's a oh, wow. it's a fairly that's a thing of beauty yeah it's very nice it was a gift uh, some years ago so it to me has got the best performance it just feels good it's, it's a fairly mm-hmm. broad nib um, also got this Waterman um, which uh, is also a nice pen once it gets going, but it uh, it tends to stick, and I have to shake it a bit. Shake it down, yeah. Um, and then this is a a rote ring, sort of again, sort of a industrial style German pen. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's another one of my. Um, and then this is one of my newer. Oh, pretty! It's a, it's a diplomat arrow. Um, it's uh, it's great. It's very heavy. It's just a massive pen. And and it's got like like heat treated steel, yeah, is it? That right. You get they these flame, kind of rainbow colors. Yeah, they flame uh, flame treated it to get that iridescent uh, look going. Um, so um, so there's that. And then when I'm editing, <clears throat> I use either a um, I've got an old Waterman pen, and I've got this, which is a, a uh, it is it's a cheaper pen, but I keep it loaded with red ink so I can see where I've made made edits um, right yeah so so yeah that's kind of the I've got another but, one that's broken so 
Okay. Yeah, you, you, you just made the, the pen geeks in the audience very happy. Thank you for that. So sure. um, I know you've done quite a lot of co-writing, um, for example, with uh, J. Frederick George, your uncle, um, mm-hmm. and also with Nicole Gallen for Dodo. And how does that work with your handwriting process? Uh, well, the most recent... So I started the handwriting thing in earnest with Baroque Cycle. Mm-hmm. So the the stuff with my uncle was earlier, and it was just all on computers. Okay. Um, the um, the only serious co-writing I've done in the fountain pen era has been with Nikki Nicole Galland on mm-hmm. Dodo, and there again, I, I I may have done some composition with fountain pen, but it was no, I, mean, I always I always type it in anyway. Sure. So I, I'll do a couple of editing passes with pen, and then when it's maybe a week after it's originally committed to paper, is about the time I get around to typing it in. Um, and okay, so, so you kind of type it in as you go. You don't well, you don't just, write the just, entire thing and then type out the whole thing. There's just no need to. Sure. I mean, it's it's good to sort of keep up with it. So if I've got a few yeah. minutes of spare time, I can type in some stuff and do some editing as I go. Um, but so in the case of Nikki, um, she's just an absolute pro. And I, I knew that from working on her with the, the Mongoliad that, that she would just be uh, kind of a flawless collaborator. And so once I, and we, we traded off um, uh, sort of big chunks at, at a time. So she would send me some stuff over to you, and maybe a month or two later, I would get back to her um, okay. with what I had written. So, had you planned the whole thing out first, and then divided up who does what bit, or did you um, to take half and half, or how? how, um, how there were there were bits that I think it was understood I would do anything mm-hmm. with kind of fake science in it. Um, <laughs> okay, was my. Uh, bailiwick and and then there were extended um historical sections that is kind of her it's kind of what nikki does and another uh, one thing that made the collaboration um easier was that it's an epistolary novel so everything right. in the form of, of debriefing reports in a bureaucratic system or emails or what have you so sure. uh, so it's naturally Naturally split up into pieces yeah, with different voices. Into, yeah, into chunks. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so did you? Did, but did you plan it all and then work within the plan, or, or did you sort of make it up as you went along? Um, it was a lot of uh, talking on the phone, I would say, okay. and arriving at a shared idea as to what was going to happen next. So we, okay, we had in our heads, we both had uh, an understanding of of what was going to happen in what order. Uh, but um, I think both of us are comfortable with um, with n- not over-planning or over-specking these things. Um, that, sure. You know, there's, there's, simply, there's simply no need. The, the plot of a book isn't that complicated. And so any reasonably intelligent person should be able to carry it around in their head while they're working on it. Okay, because I'm... I laugh because you know William Golding famously planned his novels, as he says, down to the last flicker of an eyelash. 
Wow. Um, and other people, they start with a blank page and an idea as to what the story is going to be like, and they just go from there. So you seem to be much closer to the um, discovery writing process than you are to the planning process. Yeah, which I is, do. Which surprises it. me because you're very scientific and methodical in your approach a lot of the time to other things. I, I do think it's very useful to have a notion of what the last chapter is going to look like. Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, uh, you know, in, in the case of, uh, of, of Dodo, we knew that certain things were going to have to get resolved in certain ways or you know, sure. any book. Um, and then that, that does provide some, uh, some structure to, to work within. But how you get there, I think uh, it's, you're, you're, you're basically um, missing a lot of great opportunities if you hew too rigidly to an idea that you came up with during the first two weeks of the, the project. Interesting. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm very glad you said that. You've, you've just made some of my friends very happy because <laughs> there's I, I, you probably pay no attention to it whatsoever, but in the kind of broader fiction writing community, there's, there's a lot of um, pantsers versus uh, yeah pot plotters versus pantsers or discovery writers versus planners or whatever who is, it seems to me a, com a completely unnecessary and totally contrived argument because presumably you write your novels however best suits you and everyone is going to be a bit different in that regard no matter what okay so your novels often inspire changes to the culture like, you know, Snow Crash gave us Metaverse and the idea for Google Earth and the term Avatar, and, or at least popularized the term Avatar in that context. And people credit Cryptonomicon with really lighting a fire under the idea of cryptocurrency and so on. So what do you think of what other people have done with the seeds you've planted? You know, unless somebody does something that's just egregiously terrible, I, I tend to... Um, uh, Sort of accept the compliment and move on. Um, the, right. You know, I, 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 this didn't become a thing I ever had to think about until after the Diamond Age was published. And I began to hear from a number of people who were inspired by the young lady's illustrated primer. And, you know, the, I would get email, you know, I'm part of a group that's, we're going to build the, the primer. You know, do you want to wow. work with us? That kind of thing. And, it turned out that they were all doing very different things. Mm -hmm. And so it occurred to me that the best approach was to, um, to sort of not strongly back any one particular interpretation. Right. Yeah, of course. Unless it was obviously wrong. Um, but, um, but you don't, you know, by endorsing one group's work, you're kind of... Um, Unendorsing the others. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so you sort of, you just, you create your art and how people respond to it is up to them. Yeah, there's another picture I could show you of um, when Amazon.com started um, building the Kindle. Yep. The code name for the project was Fiona, who's a character in um, the, the Diamond Age. That is so cool. And then they, <laughs> they uh, about the same time they started constructing their campus, uh, they started putting up these buildings in a particular neighborhood of Seattle. And the, the buildings were named after important words or concepts, you know, in the history of, of the, the company. And so the building where they housed a lot of the Kindle-related stuff is just called Fiona. Um, so I, I can send you a picture of me standing in front of that building. It's these giant letters, 10 feet tall. Oh, please do. Yeah. Um, 
So, you know, that's an example of um, it's just best to uh, let people do what they're going to do um, and not uh, not try to back any particular horse. Sure. Although it must be work like that that led to you getting hired for Blue Origin. That was um, sort of a one of these <clears throat> one of these weird things where I had just known Jeff Bezos for a few years at that point. Um, and how come we had met at a uh, a dinner party and started talking about rockets? And um, oh, okay, it's kind of like swords. Everyone's sort of interested in them. But you can tell if you start talking to a random person you just met about swords within a very short period of time, you can tell whether they're an ignoramus or who just thinks swords are cool or someone who actually knows something about swords. There's certain or, or an ignoramus who thinks they know something about swords, well, yeah, which I, I run into quite a bit. <laughs> right. right. Um, yeah, that's the trickier uh, yeah. situation. Um it's the same with rocket stuff. So sure. we knew that we knew that about each other. And um, so um, we had gone to see the Rocket Boys or October Skies. I can there's a book and a movie. I can never remember which is which. Um, yeah, the movie is called October Sky and the book was called The Rocket Boys. Um, but um, we had gone to see it in 1999 because we knew our wives would be bored to death by it. And then um, we went and had coffee, and he said he'd always wanted to start a rocket company. And I said, well, why don't you start it today? And he did. Um, yeah, I, I don't think okay. that's – like, that's not me exerting a lot of influence. It was like – No, no, that's just the final straw. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he had, he had wanted to do it explicitly since he was five years old. Right. So I think – if I contributed anything, it was just the notion that even if he didn't have time to really do a rocket company in a serious way, because at the time he was still building Amazon, there were still mm -hmm. a lot of questions in people's minds as to whether it would survive at all. This is like 2000, right? Yeah, 1999. Right. Um, <clears throat> but why not have just a few people quietly kind of doing some, you know, laying groundwork and thinking about possible approaches so that was the the first those entity called blue operations llc which had um five six eight employees for a number of years and um the what uh, problem were they trying to solve well basically the um not a lot had seemingly changed since in in 50 years you know if you look at sure. the, the big rockets of the you know the saturn five i still don't think the saturn five has been exceeded there's, it, it will be soon, but um, it's still people doing the same stuff. And so yeah. had there been any changes in technology in the intervening 50 years that would uh, open the door to some new way of launching stuff into space? All right. So they were basically trying to solve the problem that it's very, very expensive to get stuff off the planet. Yeah. Okay. And, and are, are chemical rockets really the best we can do, or might there be other technologies um, that 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 are now worth pursuing? Looking into, yeah. And um, and the first thing that happens when you start to study that in a systematic way is you learn that there are no new ideas, and that uh, nerds have been obsessing over this for a hundred years, 
Uh, and so um, it's really a case of, I mean, you can, you, know, you can come up with some idea that you think is really cool, um, but inevitably you'll find that some Russian guy came up with the same idea in 1936 and, um, <laughs> and figured out all the math. So it really becomes almost more of a process of, of tracking that stuff down and, and you know, evaluating it in the light of modern uh, technologies. So what, what was your sort of involvement with the company? What were you doing for them? Uh, well, that, I mean, I, um, the, uh, I, you know, I went and I, I acquired a machine shop, participated in finding the, the first building, um, you know, moved the machines into it. A lot of kind of really nuts and bolts stuff mm. just to get some kind of uh, work environment built where we could make things and work on things. Um, and then evaluating these different, like t- typically we would find people who were expert in a particular uh, form of, tra- of propulsion technology. So, for example, mm-hmm. uh, the late Dr. Jordan Kerr was an expert in, um, in a, a kind of rocket that's powered from the ground with lasers. Oh, I've never heard of this. Yeah, you put a bunch of lasers on the ground along the path of the, that the rocket's going to take. The rocket has a heat exchanger on one side that is aimed down toward the ground, and the lasers all converge their fire on it and um, uh, heat the heat up hydrogen. Right, um, and um, and so you can you can um, you can put more energy into the hydrogen that way than you can by burning. Um, I see. I was wondering what was the point of heating it up. But, okay, so did, does that actually work? Can that be done? Well, uh, Jordan Care pursued it in a to the extent he had could get resources for for a while. There's no there's no reason in principle it couldn't be done. It's just it's one of these things where it would require a big engineering effort to make it work. And the um, you know during the Cold War, trillions of dollars were put into to making chemical rockets. So right. Um, so you're kind of having to compete with that. You're, you've, sure. you've got a pretty high bar. That, that you've got to reach. Um, there's another version, a similar thing that instead of using lasers, it uses uh, microwaves. But it's the same, okay. same idea. So basic idea. So that would mean basically you need less fuel in the rocket, so the whole thing weighs less, so you can put more payload on for the same mass, total mass of rocket. Right. Is that it's an exponential. It's an exponential dependency. So the um, you know the effectiveness of an engine is measured in. It's a number called specific impulse, which is measured in seconds. And um, the uh, the best you can get by burning chemicals like liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen is in the low 400s. And people have spent billions of dollars trying to eke out, you know, a few more seconds of right. specific impulse. But with this system, could have done 800 or better. Wow. Um, which, so it's twice as much specific impulse, but because that is fed into a uh, exponential equation, the increase in payload that you could get as a result is much more than a, a factor of two. Wow. Okay. I, I guess all this sort of um, so in in seven eves when they when they're sort of escaping out to uh, off the planet because everything's you know, ex- extinction is occurring. Mm-hmm. Um, so you sort of indulged your fascination for orbital mechanics and rocketry and whatnot in, in that section of the book. That's where that came from. 
Well, I mean, yeah, I, I knew about that stuff as a as a result of, of working at Blue Origin for sure. Um, the um, and then just some of the um, details. Uh, what I think what you find um, is that um, if you go a little into some of the nitty gritty science and engineering of these things, you'll encounter things that you never would have thought of, uh, mm-hmm. but that that add a feeling of of um, reality to the to the story. So uh, there was a really important moment where I went and visited a company called Planetary Resources. It's an asteroid mining company in uh, Seattle that sadly is not operating anymore. But uh, a lot of rocket geeks there were kind of brainstorming some of the ideas that show up in the, the part of the book that you're you're talking about. And um, one of those is that you know orbits are ellipses mm-hmm. and um, they can be very elongated and the planet that you're orbiting is way down at one end of the ellipse way down at one end. and so um, in a you know really elongated orbit you spend a lot of time way out in the middle of nowhere just kind of slowly arcing around and then you accelerate inward and you get to the 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 planet that you're circling and you whip around that planet at tremendous mm. speed and go shooting back off into space. You're weightless the whole time, so you don't experience acceleration. But visually, you know, what you would see is the planet kind of rushing toward you and kind of snapping past. And so um, so I you know I use that in the in the story uh, because it's a it's a physical reality. It's a true it, it's really, you know, there's, it's not made up, um, but um, but it's a really cool visual. <laughs> yeah, and, and and it reminds one a little bit of that Star Trek movie where they have a slingshot around the sun to get the uh, yeah. speed up to come out. Because I, I never understood what that what they meant in Star Trek until I read 70s. They're like, oh, they weren't just making that up. That does actually work. Yeah, now, yeah, now in that case, what they're trying to do is change their their direction they're they're trying to mm-hmm. they want to make a right angle turn or something and so that it's a slightly different maneuver but it's the same idea yeah you you want to come really close and a lot of changes happen in a short period of time so so what's with the bullwhip thing so bullwhips are you know technology that's been around for thousands of years that can accelerate objects through the speed of sound right uh which is a remarkable fact you know, yeah yeah i, I- there are bullwhips hanging on the wall behind yeah. me that you can probably yeah. see. I'm an Indiana Jones fan. What can I say? Yeah. So, um, so that was one of the things I looked at. It was almost more of a symbolic move. I mean, I didn't actually think that we'd be making giant steel bullwhips to launch things into space, but <laughs> but it's a way of, very cool. <laughs> it's a way of saying, look, let's let's think about some really out of the box ideas. So um, I actually got a bullwhip from um what's it called david morgan oh yeah a company in seattle uh i went there and bought it from will morgan his son uh and um um and studied the physics of those and how they how they work um and that that's a whole deep that's another hour and a half um, <laughs> no yeah huge yeah. rabbit hole we could we could dive into yeah um but the, okay so but the, the base of the first person who really studied it was a Scottish guy named Aitken, John Aitken in the 1870s, who uh, he was a protege of the Thompsons, the Lord Kelvin and his brother. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, so the the knowledge of how those things work goes goes way back. Right. Yeah, and I'm you been you worked for Blue Origin for a while, and then you worked for Magic Leap for a bit doing narrative stuff with them, I think. But now you're working with a company called Lamina One. Mm-hmm. And I've had a look at the website and I've read it because I, you know, I do my research before I do these interviews. And honestly, I have no clue what Lambda One does. is about. Yeah. Yeah. So this crypto stuff is pretty abstract. And like I'm reasonably proficient at science and math, but it's still hard for me to follow as well. Um, the, the thing about crypto is that if you get one thing wrong, you're just fucked. And so um, you have to really know what you're doing it's not a good dilettante uh, activity um and is this is this the investing or the building of crypto the, uh, the actual both. building of it the building yeah. Yeah. yeah there's an idea called a layer one blockchain which just means a new a new chain one that that you start um there's uh bitcoin was the first layer one uh ethereum uh, Avalanche, others you may have heard of. There's thousands of them, but only a few that have really become significant. Um, when you do a layer one, uh, you, you can you can build additional layers of functionality on top of a layer one, um, and many people do. But you're always sort of working with the built-in constraints and the engineering decisions that the, were made when the layer one was created, mm-hmm. and you can't change that. So um, if you do a layer one, you can engineer it and tweak it um, if you know what you're doing so that it's optimal for a particular set of goals. And the right. particular goal that we're interested in is trying to support an open metaverse where um, people could kind of use the the uh, the infrastructure that we're we're going to build um, to to create their own places and and objects in the metaverse and hopefully do so profitably. So um, I'm working with Peter Vesinus, who's an early Bitcoin guy and he's a crypto. He's got fully legit math and crypto chops of his own um, and knows a lot of people in the space. And so purpose of Lamina One is to build this new chain that uh, we hope will will be a useful tool for people who want to do uh, metaverse building. So I'm trying to think of the best way to put it in really properly <laughs> non-mathematical layman crypto terms. So basically you're trying to build a like a toolkit for people to create their own versions of metaverses that they can do for like socializing or creating games or Mm -hmm. sword fighting even or anything else yeah yeah so when you look at um so the first the first layer one was bitcoin which is money that's all that's pretty much all it does yeah um it it's built in such a way that it consumes a lot of energy um Mm -hmm. the um so another well-known one that came on later is ethereum Mm -hmm. which is it's a currency like Bitcoin, but it adds new functionality in the form of smart contracts. Right. Um, so it's not just money, but it's actually a, a system for channeling payments, uh, you know, mm-hmm. sort of automated way. And um, and so every, every few years, there's a, a new sort of major innovation that comes along and adds some new. So if you think about um, what it would take to build experience in the metaverse, we don't say game, we say experience, but you could think okay. of it as a as a game. 
Um, you know, you've got a virtual environment that's populated with avatars, and it's got it's got buildings, it's got environments. You know, there's a bunch of stuff that has to be placed there in order to yeah. make it work. And each element of that is a fairly complicated bundle of art assets and sound and, and programming sure. um, that has to be created by, by someone. Um, and, um, and so those people aren't going to do that unless they get paid. Sure. Like, like most of the people who know how to do that are, you know, employed in the uh, happily or otherwise in the game industry, you know, sorting out all of the, uh, you know, who's responsible for what and who should get paid if the thing is successful is a, fairly complicated matter. So, um, so Lambda 1 will sort of make that more accessible to people who want to build stuff in it? Yeah. Okay. And how is it different from Zuckerberg's metaverse horror? I don't know that much about what those people are doing because we don't talk to each other, but um, <laughs> sure. the, the, you know, one is, the, the basic question you have to think about when you're using any service or website is how is this being paid for? Mm-hmm. So when I go to the Steam store, the Epic store, and buy a video game, that's quite transparent. Right. You know, like there it is. I, it says, here's this game. Here's what it's like. It costs $12. Right. So I give them my credit card and they get money. Money disappears from my bank account. I have the game. Um, it's all very clear. Uh, in the case of social media sites, um, you never spend any money. It's always free. And so you do need to ask yourself. There's a, there's a line in, in Harry Potter where someone says, I think it's Mr. Weasley says, never trust anything if you can't make out where it keeps its brain. Right. And, um, and so and there's a similar adage. I can't remember who said it first on the Internet, which is that if you're on a website and you can't figure out what the product is, the product is you. Yeah, sounds like something that Jared Lanier might say. So, um, yeah, it wasn't Jaron, but uh, it, it was somebody else. And I, I need to <clears throat> I need to settle this because I, I keep quoting this. Uh, you can find it easily. Um, sure. I don't know what Meta is planning and how they intend to make money off of what they're doing. But if they're using the same model as they used for Facebook, um, it's advertising. Yeah. Well, it's it's advertising, but it's it's deeper than just advertising. It's you yeah. Know, um, it's what Jaron says: behavior of users modified and made into an empire for rent, otherwise known as bummer for short. Yeah. Yeah. So um, okay. So you know you're Jaron, and so I don't need to belabor that. Um, so the with an open system, anyone can do whatever they want. You can't right. impose top down you know, controls on how it gets used. But we would certainly hope that, that a different economic model would prevail in the, the metaverse that we're talking about. So it's like the difference between YouTube, which I quit some years ago because I disliked their model, and Vimeo, where I am the customer and I host my, they host my videos for me and I pay them for that and that makes me very comfortable and there's no ads. Whereas on YouTube, I'm producing content to sell ads for YouTube. It doesn't sound like a good plan to me. Well, you're constantly um, shilling your own channel, yeah. right? just begging with people to click like and subscribe. Um, right. It's, it's, uh, yeah, yeah, because so, then, you, then you get this fraction of the advertising revenue 
Yeah. Like, it's just the numbers just don't add up for me at all because the amount of money the, the companies paying for the ads are paying for the ads. They must be making more money than that from their product or they wouldn't be worth running the ads. And YouTube is getting most of that money and giving some tiny fraction of it to the content creators. And it's like, if you have to get like 10 million views to make any kind of money, it's like, it's all, it's just yeah. a race to the, yeah, it's horrible. Ugh. Yeah. So, and you know, there's no guarantees, you know, making a living is always hard, but, um, sure. but at least we can, Set it up in such a way that it's an understandable economic transaction and not some mysterious right. skullduggery going on behind the scenes with your personal data. Okay, so so yeah, so you're 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 building a transparent platform for people to build their own metaverse metaverses on. Okay, and you will monetize it in some way, probably by those metaverse creators paying you for the service. I would guess. Well, the um, yeah, tokenomics or you know, crypto economics is. It takes a while to get used to. Um, so um, basically, these tokens circulate and have value to the extent that they're being you know, yeah, exchanged for, for goods and services. Mm-hmm. Um, so we know that dollars and pounds and euros have value because people use them to buy potatoes and gasoline. The, uh, in the case of uh, currency that's used in the metaverse, um, what people would be buying would be um, experiences or elements of experiences. And, um, right. you know, if that happens, if that actually happens, then, then those tokens have, have value. And if you own tokens, make money. You own money. Yeah, so so let's say I had a, a sword club where we would sit around and drink virtual brandy and smoke virtual cigars and chat about swords in an erudite manner, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, people would pay to be members of that club and the club would pay land rent to... Lamina one for the use of the land that is built on. Yeah, basically. Yeah, huh. that that, that okay. would be a a model that makes a sense model. to me. Yeah. Okay. There'll probably be others as well. So what what are you, in my head? You're a sword fighting dude who writes books because those are the two ways that we tend to interact, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so what are you bringing to Lamina one? If that's not a rude question, even no, if it sorry. is a rude question, I shall ask it anyway. No, it's okay. The um, so roles in companies tend to be fairly well understood. Um, they have to be. Uh, mm-hmm. So um, I'm the chairman. The role of a chairman is typically to sort of maintain overall strategic direction. Typically, a oh, chairman. Right. So you're sort of on the managing board. Kind yeah, of. It's typically a chairman. The, the board might meet with senior, the CEO and senior staff. Um, you know, a few times a year. And check in, see how things are doing. Uh, are we on the right track? You know, um, are we mm-hmm. emphasizing the right things? And uh, other, but leave day-to-day operation to them. Sure. And that that's a reasonably good fit with my capabilities. I've learned, you know, through various interactions with the corporate world that I'm not uh, particularly good at day-to-day management of things just because I get bored and mm-hmm. uh, I'm just not good at it. Uh, I'm not terrible at it, but I'm not as good as as, as what we need. Um, sure. So there's that. and then, uh, But I'm also going to be doing some work on the creative side, trying to actually build some specific experiences that um, – that hopefully will show, you know, what this could, uh, could look be. like, you know, why it's interesting, uh, you know, tell some interesting 
stories. And that also is feels like a, um, a reasonably good fit with things I know about. And uh, So you're bringing Snow Crash to life, basically. Um, that gets us into incredibly complicated <laughs> questions about the IP. I was uh, being cheeky, don't worry. Yeah. But it's like, it's like cause, I mean, that's, that's what, that was one of the cool things about Snow Crash. Although, actually, the Sumerian stuff, I, I went more for the Sumerian stuff than I did for the, the computer stuff, as you might imagine. Well, you'll be um, glad to know that there's some new, we're, we're coming out with a new edition in um, November. It's got some, some material added, um, some flashback material concerning the Sumerian stuff. Oh, fantastic. Oh, gosh, we'll certainly pick up a coffee. Yeah, um, yeah so, so basically people will be able to build the Black Sun and have sword fights in it. Hope so. Fantastic. Okay. All right. So you, you do lots of different things. One of those things I don't think is actually listen to this podcast. Shame on you. But um, but everyone else will know what's coming next. Everyone who does listen regularly, because I tend to ask a couple of standard questions at the end. Okay. The first of which is, what is the best idea you have not acted on? Not acted on at all? Or not acted on yet. I mean, how you interpret the question is kind of up to you. Like what project or, or idea or thing in the back of your head is like, I really ought to do that one day. I've always wanted to pursue the the standing, the whip stuff, the standing chain loops um, more. And I've actually worked on, I've put some work into it. So I, I have acted on it. I just keep getting sidetracked. Um, By standing chain, are we talking like high level physics or bullwhip cracking? Bullwhip cracking. Oh, fantastic. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. So you can build a loop of... of rope or chain yeah. that just stands up by itself because of the, the physics. It's the same physics that powers uh, a bullwhip. Huh. Okay, so what, what, what do you do with it? It's it's really just more of a, of a curiosity. It's more of an art okay. project. Uh, okay. So um, I've got some ideas about carbon, but I'm also trying to act on those. So sure. it wouldn't be right to say I haven't acted on them. Well, yeah, I mean, the whole of Termination Shock is all about carbon capture versus geoengineering with sulfur and yeah um, so yeah, yeah people, if people are interested in your ideas on that I think is it fair to say they should just go and read Termination Shock because you sort of cover it all in there or do you actually agree with how the novel turned out well I, I don't think anyone thinks that solar geoengineering is the real solution mm -hmm. but that's why it's an interesting novels in which everyone agrees about <laughs> you know tend not to be interesting novels but yeah. novels in which people are arguing and fighting about things you know that's a different thing so mm -hmm. um, what we really need to do is extract unbelievable amounts of carbon from the atmosphere right um, and so um, and so if solar geoengineering has a role it's just to keep everyone from dying while we do that right so it's like a delaying tactic yeah yeah. Okay. Giving you more, more time to practice your your standing whip thing. What's it called again? Well, I ca uh, I call it an Aitkenator because of this this Scottish guy I mentioned, John Aitken. Um, okay. Uh, he actually built these things uh, and wrote about them. Wrote a big paper about them. Aitkenator. Uh, so so the best idea you haven't quite acted fully on yet is you're going to build an Aitkenator. I would like to, but uh, I just think that <laughs> there's fantastic. there's other if you're capable of building an aid canator, you're probably capable of doing other things that are maybe more useful. Okay. Uh, so, so we'll see. We'll see. Um, <laughs> and then just in the 
kind of literary or creative domain, I really would like to see television series made of um, the Baroque cycle. Oh, God, yes, me too. Which would be, it's a bit of a pipe dream, but... but honestly, of all of, your, of all of your novels, apart from its gigantic length, it's probably the most filmable. That's what I think. And the length really isn't... If, if you think in terms of long-running miniseries, yeah. like you know Game of Thrones or whatever, the length is a, a feature, not a bug. Right. Well, I would really like to see that happen. Yeah, me too. But, yeah, though though we do have to fix the sword fights first, Neil, come on. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that would be an opportunity to do exactly that. Um, and, uh, yeah, yeah. So, anyway. All right, now my last question. Uh, if somebody gives you a million dollars or similarly, like, large chunk of cash. Life-changing amount of money. Well, no, because you can't spend it on yourself. Um, how would you spend it to improve historical martial arts worldwide? Really good question. Um, I'm kind of suspicious of top-down, here's how it should be kind of approaches. Cause, right. Uh, and it wouldn't work anyway because it's such a fissiparous community. Um, the uh, um, So, like, trying to impose anything is going to fail. Right. Agreed. Um, People have tried in the past and it did not go well. Right, right. Um, so I think it would have to be more bottom-up enabling. Mm -hmm. um, maybe some improvement in gear. Like maybe there's some really transformative work that could be done with, um, you know, industrial robots or something. If you could, if you could, if you could mount a, 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 a simulator on a robot arm or something like that, and then have a sort of training partner um, get in a lot of reps. It's a great question. <laughs> like, okay, I mean, one to think pretty, about. Yeah, it's a pretty energetic community, and it seems like people will do things. People get things done on their own. Mm -hmm. So, but yeah, if you could, if you could do simulations, if you could train more, uh, more consistently, more satisfactorily, um, that might be. You know, you know, the the problem with games is getting the feedback. Yeah the force feedback. And there's actually ways to, to deal with that. But um, you could imagine that if you're, you're holding a sword hilt uh, that's just connected to a robot arm, these things are incredibly precise. And so as you, if you're moving it in free air, it could just give enough feedback to feel like a, a sword of, of realistic weight. Could it actually, let's say your, your imaginary opponent parries could it actually stop your sword well then then it could do that yeah i think um wow so that is the problem really yeah with all all sword fighting i've ever seen on a video game the problem yeah. is um i can't stop your actions with my actions and you can't stop mine right right so whereas um, in real life you know when the swords come together depending on exactly how they come together but there's a fairly good chance they're going to stop yeah yeah i mean by and large people try to avoid them yeah, yeah, of course, of course, but, but but you know when when my when my attack meets your parry, yeah, my sword is forced out of its line, and right. sometimes it's forced to a stop. Sure. Yeah, and I think I'll bet that modern robot arms are good enough to. Um, they might not be perfect, but I'll I'll bet they're good enough to um, to to give you that. So you would develop a historical martial arts appropriate. Robot arm sword simulator with your million dollars. Yeah, it would take more okay. than a million dollars. But <laughs> it certainly would. Yeah.
But maybe that, not a lot more. I mean, I don't know. Okay. Well, let, let, let's let's go with that. Let's just let's just give you the money and see what happens. Yeah. I mean, it's imaginary money, so I can give out as much as I like. It's great. I've given out so much money on this show. It's fantastic. <laughs> Brilliant. All righty. So, well, thank you very much indeed for joining me today, Neil. It's been great seeing you again. Yeah, it's been most enjoyable. And I hope you're getting good use out of your falchion that I handed over to you. Um, oh, oh am I ever? Oh, it's, it's, it's there on the rack. And it's just, yes, this, oh, it, it has this bizarre property of, um, turning me into an evil pirate every time I pick it up, which is why I love it. Yeah. Yeah, well, um, you've learned something about yourself. <laughs> or maybe you knew that already. <laughs> Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Neil. You can find the episode show notes at swordschool.com forward slash podcast. While you're there, you can sign up to my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my book, Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists, which, yes, does include Neil's fabulous introduction. I'd like to thank my patrons on Patreon for their kind support of the show. It lets me know that you care about the show and want it to continue. You can join us there for behind-the-scenes content and to submit your questions for future guests. That's patreon.com forward slash thesword_guy. Thanks to Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque harp accents originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defense audiobook project. And join us next week when I'll be talking to myself about teaching. Yes, it is a solo show for a change where I will be discussing how I think about teaching historical martial arts and telling you all about a course I have developed for helping you become a better teacher in historical martial arts or indeed anything else. So you do not want to miss that. So subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, please do rate the show. And if you have an extra minute, leave a review. It really does help. Thanks for listening. And I will see you next week.